So we are back. It's March 6th, 2020 for Wait our... Wait a second. Yes. <laughs> I think it's May 6th. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> it all runs together, right? <laughs> Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. So we're back. Today is May 6, 2020, and we are recording our coronavirus update. It's been two weeks since we did our last update. Mm-hmm. We've had a little bit of a break. We had a little bit of a break because the news cycle, well, we can't really say it slowed down, but things weren't changing as rapidly. What would you think is the biggest change from two weeks ago, Dr. Jean, that we've seen? I think most of the discussion has been about reopening and when can we relax these um, stay-at-home orders. People are getting antsy and we know how devastating it's been to people's lives. Yeah, definitely. And I know that this is all being done really on a state-by-state and even county basis. Here, we're starting to see some discussion about it in California um, with some areas kind of following recommendations, some maybe not following Mm -hmm. recommendations and trying to open sooner. So what are the ramifications of, of doing this and what can we expect to see as things start to reopen? Well, if you look at the big picture, we know that in the U.S., the the really heaviest hit place was New York City. Yeah. And that makes sense because there's such a high population density there. And in general, urban areas have been hit harder than rural areas. So rural states have been relatively spared. And then, in, for example, in California, the rural counties have been relatively spared compared to the metropolitan areas. And yet, people in those rural areas still are susceptible to getting infections. So if the virus gets in there, it is transmitted. So I think as we ease up, we're going to still see transmission because there are still so many susceptible people in cities and in rural areas. And so we're still going to be recommending things like social distancing and wearing of masks and hand washing and extra precautions even as things open up. Right. What I would anticipate is maybe we could have social gatherings of small numbers of people, but we're not going to have large number of people gathering like for sporting events anytime soon. And we still should maintain the social distancing as much as possible. With this talk of things reopening, there's been some discussions about schools. It seems Mm -hmm. like that probably won't be until the fall for most schools, but how is that going to happen? I mean, you think of these classes of like 40 per class, you think of recess. Mm -hmm. How how is this going to work? What's that going to look like for kids? So there's already some talk about how that will look. And one way to do this is to stagger the number of children coming to school in terms of the times they're coming to school or the days so that it is less crowded. So maybe some kids will come to class like Monday, Wednesday, and the other kids will be Tuesday, Thursday. And maybe they won't all come to school at the same time. Some kids will be in school in the morning and some in the afternoon. So it'll still be limited. And we really want to limit class size 
I don't know the number that are going to be the recommended number per class. I've heard the number 10 thrown around. Um, wow. That's yeah, small. So that's small, yeah. And then instead of kids going to different classrooms um, and then being in the hallway in between classes, more chance for interaction, they would stay in their classroom and the teachers might rotate between classrooms. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you'd have the desks facing all the same way, so kids aren't facing each other where they might be more likely to expose each other. And then the desks would be placed um, at least six feet apart. So these are some of the ideas that are out there for reopening schools. I'm just thinking about the parents. If you're only Mm -hmm. having your kid go to school two days a week, that means that even if your office reopens, childcare may still be an issue for you. Right. So that's still going to severely impact families' lives for sure. I think that for a lot of people, they're figuring out how to work from home and that it's actually, they're able to do it for their, you know, a lot of jobs thought, oh no, we can't have our employees work at home. And they're realizing, oh, it actually does work for some people. So for some people, yeah. But a lot of people who, you know, I've been, as you know, I've been coming to work because I work at the hospital. But a lot of the people who I work with and have been at home, they're like anxious to get back to work yeah, yeah. Um, because it's awkward for them to work from home. And then many families really don't have the space to all be separate and work from home. That's understandable. So let's talk about some of the new studies and data that have come out a little bit since mm-hmm. our last recording. Um, one study that's gotten some media attention looks at the SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 virus and some of the mutations that we've seen since it first came on the scene and that some of these mutations might be more transmissible or more contagious. What do you make of this? It's hard to know what to make of it, but I've seen a lot of the headlines with this. Many people might have seen the headlines like mutant virus and things like that. So they're pretty dramatic, but... What researchers are tracking is the specific genetic makeup of the virus. All viruses mutate to a certain extent as they um, travel throughout the world and through different populations. We're all familiar with influenza, for example, that it mutates every year, and that's why we need a new vaccine. And this virus, they've been tracking mutations, and one of the mutations that seems to have changed significantly is on the spike protein, which is really important because the spike protein is what um, the virus uses to attach to cells of the respiratory tract, and then a second portion of the spike protein then fuses with those cells, so it allows for the virus to enter the cell. That's the key moment of infection. And one of the mutations um, is in a significant part of that protein that that binds to the cell receptor. Um, And that's changed over time. So at the beginning of March, these researchers found that in Europe and the U.S., one strain uh, made up about 4%, and the other strain made up about 96%. And by the end of March, this had flipped so that the strain that was in the minority now made up 70% of the circulating strains, and the other one was 30%. Was it just the circulating strains, or did it have any effect on like mortality or anything? thing like that. Like, was that strain more severe than the other strains or was it just more transmissible? Does that make sense? Well, 
Yeah, yeah. So the researchers tried to look at that, and there was one small study that suggested that maybe it was more severe. But then again, it was hard to tell because because throughout a community, there was really one particular strain circulating. So it was really difficult to tell. And then on the basis of that, the some people have said it's more transmissible, but it may not be more transmissible. It just may be the natural changing of the strains as they circulate through community. So it's just more common. Gotcha. So as strains change, which this is not unique to this novel coronavirus that happens, like you said, with the flu shot, which is why we get the flu shot every year to account for the changes in, in influenza. Do we think that once a vaccine is developed, this is going to be a vaccine that we'll have to get every year? Yeah, that that is the important question. Is this mutation significant enough that there's not stability between strains with conserved regions so that if we have an immune response to a vaccine, and remember, most of these vaccines that are being developed are based on the spike protein because we want a good immune response to that. So if we have a vaccine and the spike protein that's circulating changes enough, well, we need to have a new vaccine, and we just don't know that. We don't know how generalized the immune response is and how effective that'll be. So that's something that definitely we'll need to follow. And that is the same answer for if someone gets infected, are they immune? Are they immune and for how long? And the same thing with the vaccine. When a vaccine is developed, one of the questions will be, well, of course, one of the first questions is, is it safe and effective? And then a follow-up question will be, well, if it is effective, how long does protection last? Does it last like a month, a year, 10 years? We'll have to follow that over time. Yeah. I think this leads into antibody testing, which is increasing Mm -hmm. more for the lay public. Like I've even seen some friends that like went to some urgent care drive through in New York or something and had like a little paper that was, you know, circled if they had Mm -hmm. the antibody. And I think at least in my view, and I'm curious to hear what you think, that this is kind of dangerous at this stage for getting this antibody testing because we don't know how reliable it is and it may cause people to be a little bit like... Complacent? Yeah, complacent, Mm -hmm. exactly. Like, oh, well, I'm immune. I'm going to go out into the world when really maybe you had a different coronavirus that this is picking up or... Mm -hmm. Maybe you did, but, you know, the strains are changing. I don't know. What are your thoughts about about antibody testing for people at this stage? I think you've mentioned what the important questions are. A lot of these antibody tests have been rushed to the market, and we don't know the reliability of them. We don't know if they cross-react with the routine coronaviruses that cause about 30% of common colds routinely. Um, And then we don't know what the results actually mean in terms of if you had a positive immune response, does that mean that you're protected or could you get infected again? We just don't know those answers. Yeah. So as the test gets better, it may be more worthwhile to get done. But at this stage, Mm -hmm. it kind of seems like a money grab to me. For some of the tests, yes. And so (laughs) most of the testing that we're doing, for example, at, at our hospital, it's a, with a validated test that appears very accurate, and, and we're doing it for research purposes generally to see what the level of exposure in the community is. Remdesivir was FDA-approved for severe cases of coronavirus since we were mm-hmm. last on the air. Um, yeah, it was approved for um, more widespread use, and yes. um, it did have a modest benefit. 
What does modest mean? So there was no um, there, there was no proof that it actually saved lives or that the disease was less severe. But the group that received remdesivir got better faster. So they got better in 11 days, and the other group got better in about 15 days. So there's a modest benefit to that. And one would hope with larger studies that maybe there will be a survival advantage. I know that this is not a particularly severe disease in children, which we've talked about, um, but have they used this medication in any kids that you're aware of? Yes, some children have received remdesivir, but I haven't seen much published about it, so I'm not aware of any even preliminary results. Okay. The other thing I want to talk about with kids, because we are a pediatric podcast, is some Mm -hmm. other news that some parents or caregivers may have seen recently about this new, like, inflammatory illness is what they're describing it. So yesterday in the New York Times, there was an article that said, 15 children are hospitalized with a mysterious illness possibly tied to Mm COVID-19. And in reading about it, it sounds like Kawasaki's, which Mm -hmm. for our listeners, they may not know what that is. But as a pediatrician, you see it really frequently in the hospital. Yeah, we see it frequently because we do a lot of hospital work. Um, right. I think, you know, as other pediatricians on an outpatient basis might not see it as much. But True. True. We, we see it. And these are kids who are previously healthy who end up with fever and rash and a variety of other manifestations. It's a acute systemic inflammation. And the major worry is that this can affect the blood vessels of the heart and cause heart disease. And so yeah. we really worry about that. And we've got effective treatment for that. So we have a sort of we're thinking about it all the time when we see kids, especially with fever and um, fever, rash. red eyes, mm-hmm. rash. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not like this would be tied specifically to COVID 19 because mm-hmm. we see it after a lot of different viruses. What we see is it's, we still don't know exactly what causes it, but it does seem there must be some trigger in the environment. And so it wouldn't be surprising if. Maybe this was one of the triggers. Right. So if your child is having fever, rash, vomiting, red eyes, swollen lymph nodes, things like that, of course, it's appropriate to seek out care from your physician. Right. And any other specific things that we're seeing in kids with coronavirus that you can think of? More research is coming out that has shown that it's still mild in kids compared to adults, and many kids are asymptomatic. And one recent research study showed that kids who were asymptomatic but infected, they were probably just as likely to transmit um, as symptomatic kids. The amount of virus that they had in their respiratory tract was quite high. Wow. So even more important to make sure that we're doing a lot of hand washing, staying away from grandparents, and making Mm -hmm. sure we're measured in going back to school and things like that. Right, right, because we don't want a relapse of widespread transmission. Definitely. I just want to end today's podcast by saying that it's still extremely important for kids to get their routine immunizations that we already have. So for your child who is two months, four months, six months, eight months, a year, two years, you know, four years, and during flu season, it's really important that we protect kids against the viruses that we already have protection against. Um, And so please keep your well-child checks with your pediatricians. You know, 
most clinics can assure you that they're doing everything they can in their power to keep you and your child and everyone else in the office safe. So um, reach out to your pediatrician about that. Right, because as you mentioned, you know, there's viruses and bacteria that um, the immunizations are protecting against. And if kids fall behind on their immunization, especially the youngest kids, those under a year, that can have devastating consequences. So we don't want to see, for example, whooping cough or pertussis in a young child. They can die from that. The younger they are, the higher the risk of hospitalization and death. And we don't need a measles outbreak in the next few weeks or months either. Um, you know, the healthcare system can only take so much. And we want to make sure that healthcare is available for everybody who needs it, especially during this pandemic time. Definitely. So we will continue to try and provide every other week updates. Please keep sending us your questions and we'll be back to talk more about coronavirus then. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. 